0: See, this goes back to Babylonian times and the sort of the way that we in fact pre-babylonian as he would say you've you've got so many moving parts from a societal level from a cultural level from a technology level that it really is in you know, the history of money is the history of humanity as well so-
1: everyone, this is Sudeshna from The Abundant Psyche and you are listening to the Not-So-Corporate podcast. Here we talk about all those not-so-corporate things that corporate entrepreneurs do within and outside of corporate life. And today I have with me my colleague, Nick Holland. He's the Global Head of Research from Money 2020, and he spent about 20 years in the fintech industry. So he is the real deal when it comes to being an expert in the ecosystem. So I'm really excited to talk to Nick. Um, Before passing it over to you, Nick, I'll just read a bit of your bio to the Listeners, Nick has been focusing on the intersection of financial services, fraud, identity, and technology since 2001. And his clients have included card networks, payment processors, technology vendors, mobile operators, social networks, government agencies, and more. And he's spoken and chaired a variety of conferences, including Mobile World Congress, Money 2020, before he joined us, Next Bank. SXSW and appeared in publications including all of the big names Wall Street Journal, CNN Money, NPR's Marketplace, Forbes, Fortune, Businessweek, Time Magazine, Economist, Financial Times. Nick, I'm so excited to have you. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Sideshna. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks.
1: <laughs> so exciting to have you. Nick, If I just started off with your view on the fintech ecosystem and how you have seen it evolve in the last few years, um, what would you say? Well, you
0: mentioned I've been doing this for 20 years and it's a very different place from where we were 20 years ago. But having said that, there's, there's a lot of things that haven't changed that much as well. So it's this weird sort of two horse race in fintech and financial services, because you always have technology evolution. You have obviously in the last 20 years, we've seen the emergence of smartphones and social networks and obviously blockchain and NFTs and all that stuff. But so you've got that on one side, you've got this sort of innovation from a tech side. On the back end, you've got an industry that's very pedestrian when it comes to evol- evolving from traditional payment networks. From things like, look at look at any wallet you've got, you still see a magnetic stripe on that on that card. So it's like on one one end of the scale, you're at the sharp end of really fantastic technological evolution. On the other end, you're tethered to again fifty year old, sixty year old systems that are just pervasive in everywhere. So it's a fascinating time. And like I say, I've sort of seen the evolution of particularly things like mobile payments, mobile banking, and obviously everything that goes around that. And clearly, the last couple of years have been something of an accelerant in terms of some of the the things that I was (laughs) pushing for 20 years. And who who knew the catalyst would be a pandemic? But like I say, there's a great deal of innovation, but it's also within the confines of a lot of cultural norms and traditions that are in some ways, I would say, wouldn't say stifling adoption, but they're they're nuances you have to consider in in sort of the entire picture there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the pandemic. Do you want to maybe tell us a bit about what is the shift that the pandemic brought about that maybe someone like you had been pushing for 20 years and then The
0: pandemic changed everything. the, The first exhibit A is this: none of this exists, right? I'm living in this sort of virtual space now, we all are, it's all a bit of smoke and mirrors. Clearly it's evolved the way we work and the way we live in a fairly dramatic manner. But I think in terms of from the payment standpoint, certainly things like contactless payments and the ability to bank or pay anywhere, have, have, again, had to evolve leaps and bounds because people couldn't physically go to a bank branch. So there's some sort of square peg, round hole solutions there. You're seeing a lot of QR codes that are not the best technology solution, but they are readily available. And I think it's, it's clearly, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So you've had to, in a lot of cases, just deal with that. If people are working remotely, you've got to evolve things very quickly to uh, obviously embrace that new scenario. So it's been, I think, an eye-opener for a lot of institutions that were probably more pedestrian, that were more, I could not say handcuffed, but certainly bound to traditional banks and bank branches and so on. And and again, you see that in the retail space as well. I mean, the, the, the retailers that didn't necessarily evolve their digital channels probably had a harder time than others. But I think for a lot of companies, it's been you know something that would that they were on this trajectory anyway. And this has just sort of accelerated what they were planning to do in the next three to five years. So They just had to compress the timeline within a couple of years.
1: So on that is really interesting because for the first few months of the pandemic, at least, I think all of us were dealing with, I don't even want to touch my credit card to the machine. So that's it- what we sort of dealt with. People were going cashless. My parents almost went cashless. That's a big thing. It
0: has been... Yeah, like I said, I I was looking at contactless technologies back in 2001 for, I did actually my master's thesis on contactless payments, which was a little before it was ready for the market. And I spent probably the best part of 15 years after that trying to push for the, when are they going to happen? And we brought out Apple Pay and so on, but there still really wasn't that use case until, like you say, the pandemic, you didn't want to touch it upon a cell terminal, you didn't want to touch an ATM, you didn't really want to go anywhere near physical paper. In fact, I can remember clearly, probably the middle of the pandemic, sudden craving to go and get a hot dog from a street vendor. Had to pay with cash, had to go and get some cash out of the ATM. And it it was like holding someone's face mask. It was like just this, this sort of limp note. And I was like, this is eating street hot dogs. But then, you know, if you can't trust the notes, it's a strange feeling. So... And I think we we maybe got over that germophobia a little bit, but it has it, it's a lot of it's about muscle memory when it comes to payments, right? So it's habitually now I don't even bother reaching for my wallet. I'll grab my phone and use that, okay? So it's yeah. It's something's changed in terms of the the mechanisms of payments. I I can't remember, other than the hot dog incident, the last time I actually held physical money.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mm. Uh, got it. So do you feel like we are already at that point where we are reaching a place of, if some businesses don't cope up or step up or change their tech stack, they will perhaps start dying off or are we still a few years away from that? Do you feel like that point... I, I don't again.
0: I, like I say, I mean, I think there is. It's going to become cumbersome for some businesses that want to deal, you know, predominantly in cash or checks. And I think the U.S. is probably a little bit behind Europe when it comes to, you know, the evolution of payments. But I think from two things, is from an inclusion aspect, you've got to consider that not all people are that tech savvy. So to trans to force a kind of a transition to digital, and that might even include card payments, might be something they don't want to do. But the other thing is, again, it's just like I say, there's this sort of very strong legacy position of, of analogue payment mechanisms that's still very pervasive. It, it's still people don't trust necessarily the, the lack of anonymity you have with electronic payments. There's a lot of people who would prefer to use paper cash for, for whatever reasons. It's The, the dollar bill is, is a reliable, universal mechanism of trust. I think if I'm going to jump to a neo-bank with a name that's maybe an acronym or something a bit funky... I don't as a consumer necessarily know that is legitimate, but I do know that the bank down the street from me, it's got it's got sort of the Corinthian columns outside, it's got it's got bank vaults. I can see there's people in there. There's a trust in the traditional and it's never more present than in something, like I'd say, maybe a few industries, certainly payments, maybe healthcare. You want, you want to make sure the hospital is legit. Things that are really going to materially impact you if they're not legitimate, I think you really do need to, like I say, there's still a requirement. And this is the incredible balancing act that a lot of organizations are dealing with today. They can't go too digital because it's it, they're, they're losing that, I guess, heritage and pedigree that they've cultivated maybe over even centuries if they do so. So it's... It's a really fine line between this sort of digital transformation, but not too far and finding, gets guess, that sort of Goldilocks zone between not too digital and not too analog. And, it's, and here's, here's the other thing as well. It's changing on a daily basis. So what your customer base looks like today could be very different in six months' time, given, again, the generational shift and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you throw into that things like security, like cybersecurity. Yeah. Like one of the reasons my dad never trusts ATM payments, my God, like I don't know how the man lives without a card in 2022, but anywho, uh, there are still people like that and they won't trust the system because he's afraid that his card thing might get hacked. Sure, but so can his bank get hacked.
0: It's also worth noting there are, It's you know, for for our kind of collective reliance on things like mobile technology and, and cell towers and all that kind of stuff, it's not very difficult in America to find places where you've got no cellular connectivity or you've got no internet access. And it's, so it's you have to have the legacy systems in place because, it, like I say, literally some places, and I don't have to even have, go very far from here, you're going down to sort of far more basic mobile networks, you might not get any coverage whatsoever. So you need to have that fallback on things that will work in an offline environment as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Shifting base slightly onto Web 3.0, I have had a few people, a couple of people on the podcast before talking about blockchain, but not really from a financial services perspective. So real, for dummies, Nick, what on earth is Web 3.0?
0: Good question. So I, I would, I'll would, i do a very brief history of Web 1 and Web 2, if we may, so we'll get to where Web 3 is. So... And I'll kind of try and keep this as succinct as possible. So, if Web One was a golden, want to say the golden age, but the first era of the internet, where if you can remember this, like I can, in the sort of the late 90s or even mid 90s, you'd have these screeching modems that would download web pages in chunks, right? And it would take possibly 30 minutes to get a decent page down so so the idea of it being a channel of communication was just done it was really it was almost read-only you would see web pages and yes there were email services but you would send an email no idea whether the other person was online so you'd like it was it was more, it was much more like physical mail right it was yes it was slightly quicker because it was digital but you've got to rely on the other person probably not being online at the time you're sending it so it was a, a also fascinating time for the experimentation, and it's really a time when the internet was owned by its users, right? So, great time. And that would probably end around about maybe the early 2000s. So that's Web 1. Um, Web 2, I'd say, was a couple of stages. So Web 2.1, let me get this numerical value, right? Was, again, a kind of slightly more interesting time. You got faster internet. You had, you know, the emergence of Wi-Fi networks. Clearly, this era was smartphone intensive as well. So, the internet there was not something that you went to, it came to you instead. It was something that was always on, you always had it with you. And really, sort of the golden age of communication with things like social networks starting to spring up. You can also remember, maybe you can remember MySpace and this Harvard fledgling called Facebook that appeared around about, you know, mm. sort of 2009, 10 time maybe. It was, you had a lot of innovation there with this sort of read write. It became much more sort of, like omnidirectional it was more a platform for conversation as we moved on so that probably ended around about 2012 maybe as we moved on from there you've got these i guess the emergence of really big tech so you have Amazon becoming a digital provider of of content. You had Facebook clearly hitting billions of users globally. You had Apple inventing things like Siri, so purely new forms of communication interaction. It was really, obviously, again, the emergence of things like Twitter. And as these platforms evolved, I think they, we've seen it, they became very large, kind of mega corporations that would be very difficult to compete with, and very much centralized controllers of content. So they control the content you see, they control the the advertising very much based around monetizing you the adage if you're not paying for something then you're the product was really something Mm. that kind of came of age with this and that was where we're at now we're starting to see web 3 creep in but web 2 was really this i'd say that the platformification of the internet so you have these big entities that we now as i say called big tech that are the bastions of of controlling what we see and do online and frankly like web 3 is really a reset from that so instead of if you want to consider that you know where we're at is Web 2.2, you've got these these entities that are sort of centralised and control. If I want to communicate with you, Sudeeshna, I probably have to go through a platform to do so. If I want to, you know, do do anything you know related to uh, social media or, or communication, there is an intermediary there. The ethos or the the, the central tenet, I guess, of Web 3 is this decentralisation. So. Again, and I'm not going to get into the weeds too much, but if you imagine that the you're cutting out the middleman in almost everything. So there's a direct connection between you and other individuals. And the network is collectively owned by, by you. So rather than there being a need for a central entity that is the kind of gatekeeper everyone's the gatekeeper. It's a sort of very, almost utopian, egalitarian system of whatever. So in traditional industries like financial services, where you've often had an intermediary, where that's like a mortgage broker or a payment network, there's now the potential again for that disintermediation, where the, the network becomes the, back a little bit via blockchain, which is recording all the transactions, the network is the trusted entity rather than an individual or a company. And uh, resultingly, again, you you can probably cut out the middleman and make the in in these in many scenarios the transaction probably cheaper, faster, more efficient. There are some downsides to Web3 in the terms of it. Again, if everyone owns it, does how do decisions get made by committee? It's still in very early stages in some respects. So we've seen clearly, uh, say, the novelty value of things like NFTs being front and center. As this is the, the state of Web3 right now. But in terms of many industries, you'll see that sort of playfulness or experimentation with content is, is kind of the, the canary in the mine for further conversations or further experimentation. So I think we're really on the cusp of seeing kind of the monetization of Web3. As I say, it is a little utopian. A lot of the the sort of the truly decentralized platforms have yet to really emerge. So what we're going to probably see for the next X number of years, again, bearing in mind that financial services doesn't move very quickly, is this fusion of probably Web3 technologies into Web2 platforms. So there's streamlining processes, cutting out latency in terms of any sort of requirements for intermediaries. And I think, Honestly, we're going to sort of see some experimentation, but I think that the fintech industry and the financial service industry are very concerned that they don't cannibalize existing business lines or in some cases even make themselves redundant. So you're seeing at this point quite a bit of FOMO in terms of what would be somewhat legacy companies dabbling in things like blockchain and crypto and even, I'd say, sort of state governments where they're looking at CBDCs as experimenting with digital currencies but might not necessarily... Go into that space. There's a lot of again. It's a big sort of playground right now, and there's a lot of scope for innovation. But as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of moving parts of financial services, and things do move at say sort of a vegetable speed in some respects.
1: Yeah, and it makes sense as well because you are talking about high stakes, people's money, people's communication channels, and all of that. So all of that makes sense. So what is your thinking, Nick, in terms of when do we Or do we at all expect to see some form of, not some form of people, just people adopting more and more blockchain technologies, cryptocurrencies? Like I know people like Gary Vaynerchuk will say that you have your NFTs on your wallet and your wallet will be public and all of that. So what is your thinking about where is this space evolving and how long away are we from actually seeing people's public wallets
0: yeah it's it's a great question because i really i mean bitcoin's been around for a decade or more now so you're starting to see again adoption mainstream a little bit, and the fact that you've got people like PayPal providing crypto wallets now, and certainly sort of the larger financial institutions providing that service, again, sort of smacks a little bit of FOMO. Again, people don't want to be left out of this, and they want to provide services, the sort of one-stop shop for all things. Honestly, I honestly think it's going to be fairly niche for a while until we find the, I mean, I put it this way, I think people are going to be embracing Web3 and crypto accidentally in some of the products and services that they come across, in that... Web three will have maybe disrupted the payment rails in the background, but they don't necessarily have to know about that. So there'll be efficiencies that people are passively witnessing through the evolution of the technology. When it comes to again the crypto assets and the cryptocurrencies and so on, it's it's interesting how geopolitical instability has well, not always, but it has been a catalyst for the growth in crypto in some spaces. I think it was Greece, the potential Grexit, I think it was 2015, dovetailed to obviously a really significant leap in the, the you know, use of Bitcoin by uh, the Greek population, because Greek banks were literally going to confiscate money out of their bank accounts. So is crypto safe and, and stable? No. But is it safer or stable than the you know existing uh, financial services mechanism you've got? in some cases, maybe. We're seeing this play out now with Ukraine and Russia in terms of crypto sanctions and how, possible, how likely is it that you can actually evade sanctions through crypto. But also in, again, we've seen the positive side of crypto donations being extremely impactful and the acceleration of, of crypto is something that's normalized within sort of the Ukrainian population. So it's, I think there's a lot of sort of precipitating events that are sort of accelerating crypto and cryptocurrencies and so on. But again, back to my earlier point, people like physical cash, they like, you know, they they trust money that is issued by a state government and the whole concept of crypto. I mean, put it this way. I I can't easily explain it to even my crypto friends, let alone the the population at large. So it's it's not easy to get your head in this idea that, what was one of the analogies I heard, it's, it's like a cryptocurrency is like having a taxi running outside your house that is solving sudukos that you can use to buy heroin so it's really <laughs> a little obsolete now but it's a strange thing explain or, or why are people mining cryptocurrency and it's costing in, in terms of gigawatts huge amounts for something that is intangible but it's
1: yeah <laughs> and part of me is like but then philosophically speaking what is money I wrote
0: a blog post on this, which we'll be publishing not too soon, but it's like, why did people pay, why did someone pay $69 million for Beeple's, basically a JPEG last year, right? Which is, made him the third most, you know, wealthy living artist today. It's like, well, if you look at, again, if you look at a Picasso, it's just oil on canvas, right? You could, it's, if you look, get it down to his constituent parts, or if you look at, I think there's Damien Hirst's Shark in formaldehyde, that is art, you know, is in, or is it just a shark informaldide? And it's so much to do with context and scarcity and, and the timing of when something happens. So you see NFTs being mined or, or created in massive numbers right now. And it's so uh, yes, you know, the original board apes are significant and commanding high prices. When everyone has them, it's like something you get out of a cereal packet, right? It's just that. So NFTs, I think, have been sort of an interesting proof of concept. But I think, as I say, the The true value proposition is in this ability to re-architect some of the fundamentals of various businesses where there's been an intermediary. But also just the fundamental shifting of something, making something digital, which has always been fungible, into something that is now non-fungible. So the entire creative industry, we're in it as well, If 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 I publish a piece of literature on the internet effectively anyone can cut and paste it and they've got their own version which is why you have things like paywalls and so on and so forth or subscriptions for content in the context of it now becoming non-fungible that item is now unique and there is a bit of process that it's, it's become scarce so there's a lot in that i think as well but it, we're just really just touching the surface on the you know potential um, value propositions there
1: yeah for sure and i think on that my my sort of cutfield says that people brands who are already well established in the physical world will perhaps find faster success in this nft world and probably can sustain success so then I, is it in and all of that i don't know yeah
0: it's interesting i was chatting with a colleague about this earlier it's like so as as banks and retailers move to the meta i'm concerned about their lack of imagination where i I don't want to go wandering around shopping aisles in a virtual Marks and Or you know? <laughs> yeah. So because it exists, it's, let, let's think about the unique attributes of, of the metaverse and maybe how we can embrace that rather than just recreating, mm. you know, the physical world in a digital format. So I think we're going to see a lot of big brands experiment in the metaverse, but I think be guilty of a total lack of imagination. So I don't want the idea of lining up in a virtual bank branch to go and pay a check in. You know, let's replicate the worst aspects in the physical. Yeah, format. yeah. I,
1: yeah. I, I, I think it'll probably be more like the. LVs and the Gucci's of the world will probably find something niche. It's
0: the audience to start with that are actually buying the NFTs, right? So they'll want to be part of the exclusive club that is enables within the metaverse. It's all very well having a bored ape on your, you know, Apple watch, but if it's recognising your status, if a tree falls in the woods and no one could see it, then what's its value? So maybe that is the first case. It's a a place where you can sort of show off your, you know, virtual bling in in to other people that might be impressed by it. I'm personally deeply, I wouldn't say concerned, but I'd say I've seen this happen with Second Life about a decade ago, and yes, maybe the technology's moved on, but I think the jury's out on how much time people actually want to spend in the meta. Yeah. We'll see. Prove, prove me wrong, world. I'm sure you will.
1: <laughs> it is deeply concerning if we get to the point where you don't need to get out of your home and you just are in a virtual reality pizza's coming to you and you just literally it's it sounds very
0: it's very black mirror right and i think it's totally i I hope we get better at again imagination it reminds me what reminds me of there's a couple of things but the the pen and teller they've been magicians for a long time but in the i think it was the mid 80s they brought out a computer game and it was called i think it's like desert bus journey and you—it's a real-time bus journey. You're just in a bus driving across, I think, the the Arizona desert for seven hours. That's—I that's, think—well, again, you know, ex- exhibit A of how the metaverse, how bad it could be. So, you know, let's pick out the attributes that are unique about this and, and truly do something interesting, rather than just this replication of what we would be doing anyway. I'm not going to do virtual stock
1: folding or whatever. I I, I am not much of a, I don't know, we we shall probably see. I'm not the gamer, so maybe I'll take a standby and see where the world goes. But coming back to more, I don't know if that's more exciting, but definitely in the artificial intelligence world, quantum computing has been one of the things that has been quite interesting as well. So if we throw in that into the mix... How do you see the
0: evolution of that? That That is a fascinating curveball, right? It's this... Quantum computing has been in the background for quite some time now. It's always been seen as somewhat academic and hypothetical, and, and certainly its impact on things like cryptography has been known. But again, it has been seen as almost science fiction. I, I think now we're starting to see some organisations time to really take it seriously particularly the the potential for state governments to be working somewhere some somehow on developing a quantum computer which completely upends cryptography and in many cases cryptocurrency as we know it so it it is probably time to start thinking of contingency plans for cryptographic models that will be made obsolete by this and I think as I understand it, I'm no quantum cryptographer. I, I spoke to one a couple of years ago, and it was very quickly lost in in the sort of the acronyms and the obviously quantum physics and so on. But it was, I, I think, as I say, the concern is quantum cryptography is going to happen now, but at some future date. Everything that is public key encrypted can probably be broken with quantum computing. Meaning that if you have any state secrets now, or there's whatever assets you have, or cryptocurrencies or whatever mm-hmm. that's based around public key encryption. Those are now decrypted, even if this happens five years down the line from now, so or ten years or whatever. So it's it will have some pretty massive implications for existing cryptographic models. But I think in terms of the trickle down effect of the technology, it's going to be probably it's going to be state governments and academics, the star you know universities that have this technology in a very limited form. So it's going to be a long time, I think, before the trickle down for your average hacker to have access to a quantum computer. So it's a future threat. We don't know, again, the state of what's happening with some more secretive governments in terms of their development of this. But this this problem is already in the mail, I think. So fascinating slash disturbing, but also truly hypothetical in some respects as well at this point in time. It's Again, there's been a couple of examples of conferences demonstrating crypto, crypto quantum computing. Again, I think when you kick the tires on them, they are really sort of at the science project phase of things. It's not really something that could be commercialized anytime soon. Again, prove me wrong wrong world. I have this uncanny knack of of saying something will be years off and then it'll be like, hey, lightning could never strike twice, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So Nick, when I... From what you just said, it all seems like a lot of these things are in the works. So for any business out there right now who's thinking about, like the business leaders thinking about all of this and wondering about the implications of these for their businesses um, on the most generic possible way, what is the technology they should be looking at? What are the places they should be
0: investing in yeah i think so we touched on sort of technologies that are somewhat nascent so we touched on obviously sort of everything in crypto and quantum computing. i think it's probably more important focus i would say less on the technology but more on the changing attitude of the consumer so we've all transitioned the last couple of years from being to some extent a hybrid sort of physical digital human to to something that's now more digital in terms of how we interact and do our business. With that, I think you need to really think very hard about the customer experience, user experience for digital in every aspect. So in particularly financial services, you need to focus clearly on robust identity management and knowing Definitively that the person in front of you is that person, so there 's going to be again as retail 's evolving there 's going to be more stringent requirements for things like age assurance to make sure that it 's not children buying things they shouldn 't be or having access to things they shouldn 't have but just from again opening an account or whatever it 's the contrast between some of the the you know neo banks that have come to market and the legacy banks that are out there, it's night and day in terms of the steps you have to go through. It could be as little as like under 10 steps from some of the neo banks. I've heard stories of it being like 120 steps for a traditional bank opening an account digitally. And then you've still got to go to a bank branch and show them a utility bill in your driver's license or whatever. So it, personally, where most companies should be focusing is very much on that onboarding of the consumer and a focus on their digital life cycle as well so it's not just about even just 10 years ago you could rely on a certain amount of foot traffic to your bank branch and opening an account and staying with you because they weren't really involved in the internet they were quite happy with you know their local bank branch or community bank or whatever and that was fine and to some extent, that still is fine for a lot of people. But now that assumption that they're going to stay with you for X number of years is is gone, that you're more likely to build a financial product of your own that is a mixture of... If we look at what, what I use now, is a mixture of physical banks, purely digital banks, the payment network provide people like PayPal or Venmo over here. It's It's this kind of hodgepodge of different providers that will collectively form a solution for me. So I think there's... Two things from that, I mean, clearly there's a need for interoperability between these organisations, and I think to some extent, so the open banking standards are getting us towards that. I also think as well, there's this need for organisations to think more holistically, again, about that lifecycle management. And you're seeing this in some ideas, the idea of kind of the, the super apps for banking or the super apps for payments. You know, I, I think it's, it's incumbent on us to really focus on, again, that user experience and making sure that services and products are, are sticky enough that people won't, move to alternative providers but, but are also constantly evolving and fulfilling their needs for that streamline activity you know it's and, and that goes into all aspects of banking I mean, the whole idea of a you, you've got three business days to to for something to settle in your bank account when you can stream a video instantly or i, I can order groceries and have them in half an hour to my house so the idea you're not just being compared now to financial services are being paid compared to everything video delivery like retail delivery everything so the the battle lines have changed a lot you've clearly got this your comparison to everything that's out there now rather than just financial providers and it's almost on a global level as well you're not any more bound to the banks in your region or even your country you could be banking internationally or using it so it's a buyer's choice and i think it's absolutely incumbent on the providers the financial institutions payment networks too, to work on just making sure that the, the user experience is as seamless as possible balancing out that knowing who somebody is definitively using i would say things like behavioral biometrics or telemetry from mobile signals but also you clearly want to still have that personal touch as well so it's 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 a fine line, clearly. You can't you you don't want to be sort of so stringent in terms of onboarding that people defect, but you also need to know who they are. So uh, that's where I see the real battle lines right now again. This fusion of you know, robust identity management with certainly customer lifecycle management design that is gonna keep people on board for months and years.
1: Yeah, I think Consumer experience, customer experience, data on that, their behavior, all of that, and through insight that the privacy norms going sort of absolutely crazy in the data world, um, yeah. becoming more and more complex every day. So I think what you, from what I gathered, you say it it is like focus there, perhaps, and do what is best for your customers so that you retain them for longer. Absolutely,
0: have one eye on what's happening at a macro level in terms of you know people's attitudes towards crypto and their attitudes towards whatever that's changing. But it's as you say, you've got to be the, the thing to consider is we're not going back again, whatever's happened in the last few years, we're not going back to anything like 2019. It's that ship has sailed, the digital acceleration happened, we've now moved to a basically different way of enacting, reacting to the world around us.
1: So, Nick. Like- you have had a really fascinating career. Sometimes I feel jealous of all of the things that you've gotten to do, talking to a variety of people, stakeholders, clients across the FinTech ecosystem. If I asked you for your biggest career lesson and your advice to anyone who's aspiring to do something like you did, what would
0: that I'd, I'd say just be hungry. It, it's there's no other advice, and it's not even really advice. You're, you're either you're either passionate about a topic or you're not. And it's I, I'm genuinely I discovered fintech before it was fintech. I did my master's degree, as I said, focused on payment technology for my thesis, and it just opened up a world to me. Self-admittedly nerdy topic, but there's a collective of nerds out there that find that the idiosyncrasies of the payments world and the retail banking world and so on fascinating because it is again, if you read huge fan of dave birch you know i've read any of his stuff it's this goes back to babylonian times and the sort of the way that we in fact pre-babylonian as he would say you've you've got so many moving parts from a societal level from a cultural level from a technology level that it really is the history of money is the history of humanity as well so it's from that standpoint it's fascinating so full disclosure my you know like i said master's degree around payment technology but prior to that my bachelors was art history so I was always historically curious but like I say it's for me just a fascinating and ever-evolving topic that touches every aspect of our daily lives so I think it's not really a lesson it's it's, it's just it's more of an epiphany for me it's like this is actually the the Hogwarts sorting hats decided that I was a fintech nerd at some point and it's like this is what you do so it's, it's just that and it's like be passionate be hungry about knowledge and be humble as well again I've made a lot of bad predictions in the past which were good at the time but you know got sort of unraveled so you've got to also you know take the rough with the smooth it's not going to be you're not going to be right even most of the time Uh, it's something it's it's a constantly evolving platform for arguments and the hypotheses and as we'll see with again today i could be utterly wrong about my predictions here around crypto in, in quantum or whatever but you go by the knowledge you have at any particular point in time
1: absolutely we'll come back in 10 years and ask you again finally one thing that i ask everyone on the show is nick what is that one not so corporate thing that you do that you think has made you more successful than most others in your
0: field non-corporate thing that i do oh man that's a great question i i am i'd say i'd say certainly have passions outside of your work environment as well i'm if people you know have, have known me for some time uh, they'll know what I'm really like in terms of my music collection things like that. I'm, I'm a passionate old-school British punk to be honest so there's photos of me back in the 80s and Bohemians and things like that so but it's it's also it's always been again this sort of passion for the counterculture and being unusual and somewhat contrarian. I still keep one foot in the music scene there and I think that's been to me, very valuable in terms of just grounding you in a a culture that is, you know, from the heart as well. It's like, it's it's super important to have activities outside of work that are at zero connection just for that true sort of separation of church and state. So for me, that's my escapism from, again, the the, the day job. I love the day job as well. But it's been valuable, I think, to have just that, I I guess, escape hatch from the, the traditions of, again, everyday living. Just get out see noisy gigs, get sweaty, and go home. I stand at the back a lot more these days, I'll say that
1: Got it. So that's your refresher when you need some... It's,
0: yeah, absolutely. That's how I, I reset through being in, in sweaty back rooms of bars.
1: <laughs> brilliant. I will not tell anyone that. Okay, this has been brilliant, Nick. So anyone yeah. who wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you?
0: You can find me on LinkedIn. I look am look up Nick Holland, Money 2020. Even my Twitter handle is at Nickster2407. You can find me on all good conferences and events. <laughs> You'll certainly see me at Money 2020, both in Amsterdam and Las Vegas this year. So that'll be i'm so excited to leave the country
1: (laughs) (laughs) that'll be awesome and yes i'll leave all of the links in the show notes below this has been such a pleasure nick it was really great to have your brains on all of this stuff and those of you who've been listening to us for this long thank you and we'll see you the next time bye